Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Richard Jaimez. He is the co-founder of Turning Point. This is a really interesting conversation I have today with Richard. I really enjoyed myself and learned a lot. Richard is not our typical kind of outsourcing guest. He is a futurist and he offers foresight services for uh, businesses, for corporations to help them see into the future and prepare for the future. It was a really good conversation with Richard. I think, of course, I kind of twisted it towards offshoring, outsourcing, the move towards remote work. Uh, And it's just there's been so much change in the industry lately. Of course, one of the big catalysts with that was uh, COVID and the trend towards remote and home-based work. And so there's been huge, huge change in society and how we employ people, how we work. Uh, Really good conversation. We, of course, talk, we cover all of those things uh, and we talk about the future generally. So great conversation with Richard, the futurist of Turning Point. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start or somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Richard, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. You are going to help me see into the future so welcome richard and uh let me know what tell us what do you do sure thank you derek for the invitation and um yeah one of the things that i do is i'm a futurist so this means basically i try to help people manage the future try to understand what could be coming and how to prepare for it so that's i would say in a gist that's what i do That's so cool, isn't it? Our audience uh, is in for a treat today. Normally, we only talk about boring old outsourcing, and here we are talking about the future. My gosh. So I'm uh, I'm certainly certainly excited. So, Richard, um, tell us, first of all, you know, um, what 
futurism is. And you said specifically, you know, we were talking before, and, and specifically you deal in foresight. Um, and so talk about what futurism is, and I suppose the, the sort of the, the what structure behind that, and then and how does that correlate with foresight? Sure. So like when, when we're talking about thinking about the future, we usually, what we're trying to aim at is looking ahead. We, we're trying to anticipate, we're trying to read signals, we're trying to understand what might be happening today. A lot of the times we might project it into the future and, and, and try to say, well, this is where it could go. But we're also looking for things that have not developed into something that we could really say it's a trend. So when we're thinking about you know, the future, we're really scanning, we're, we're looking at what's our environment happening, we're looking at different forms of creating yeah, those futures or those possibilities that we could have. So it kind of starts off in a, in a very simple, simple idea. So imagine that you know, you're, you're driving down the street and uh, you're in your car and you're kind of scanning left, right, behind, in, for, in front of you. And, and you're looking at see what the other cars are doing, their kind of their behaviors. Uh, you're also looking at where you want to go, uh, that point that you want to reach. And you're looking always and saying, well, if that car moves up a little bit right or left or in front of me or goes faster or slower, what are my ways that I can move around that? those blockers that could be there or potential dangers. So the same thing applies to how we deal with business and how we deal with future in that business view, I would say. So that's really much where, where it's going and, and you're trying to navigate into that future or even create your own. So that could be also another form of looking at it. It's fascinating, isn't it? And what is the, what, what's the methodology? I mean, I suppose you're, you know, you're in the car and you're looking at all of the, the trends or the things happening around you. How do you know what is relevant and what is noise or, you know, what is something that should be noticed or something that should be ignored as you're driving down the proverbial street? Yes. Now, let's get a little bit more complicated, Derek. It's, it's not so black and white. And, and usually there, there are an array of, of different methods that you can use. So I like, I like your question of looking at, you know, what is that noise and what is something that's really impacting for me? So when you look at a lot of the signals that you're getting throughout business and, and throughout what you're doing, you're looking at your markets, you're looking at your products, you're looking at your competitors, what are they doing, what's being developed, what kind of influence factors, and this would be the first term that I'm going to introduce uh, for us would be an influence factor. An influence factor would be basically something that I'm looking at in my complete system and that is actually influencing other elements. So that's how I'm going to define what something that's going to hit me or could impact me from that noise. Let's take maybe an example. You might see that um, in, in your daily business life, uh, you might be looking at certain economic factors. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at how a, a country is developing. I'm looking at the need for those people in that country for a certain product or service. And you might be starting to measure that. How many people are using that? What is their interest? How much would they be willing to pay? And then the noise would be a lot of the hype things that come up. You might see them as something important. You can put them into your system. So you're creating a system of elements and starting to look and say, well, does that really affect me or this hype or noise? And then you can leave it out. 
you can see how impactful that element would be. So for example, if somebody comes up with a new application for an app or, or a new type of communication uh, that will replace, I don't know, cell phones, for example, then how strong is that element within that system? And through that system, then what you're doing is basically creating scenarios. So when you're creating those scenarios, we can go into that a little bit later, but you're looking at very much something that's, that's a systematic way of understanding those uncertainties of the future and deriving then effects. What does that mean for me? If I would live in that scenario X, Y, or Z, what does that mean for me now, for my business, for my products, for my people, for my way of doing business? And all of that, we kind of encompass it within a field of study that we just call strategic foresight. So we're looking at strategy and we're looking at foresight, which would be anticipating and looking ahead. Got it. It's, fan- it's um, fascinating, isn't it? And I, from what I understand, you know, in my sort of humble observations, it, it like it is speeding up, isn't it? The the change is speeding up. Innovation is speeding up. You know, from what I understand, two thousand years ago, not much happened and not much changed, uh, and now the rate of change is speeding up. But also, do you get do you get peaks and troughs in terms of like it seems like there is a lot happening in the last couple of years, uh, and things are really changing. Whereas in the nineties. I don't know if anything changed. I think the whole 90s was a complete write-off for innovation, was it? Like, And then, you know, in 2000s, you had the internet and things started to get a little bit exciting again. And now you have electric cars and work from home. Uh, does it does it kind of have um, sort of bursts and, and uh, uh, the opposite to bursts? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, that's a good point. And, and I like how you say the 90s. I mean, I... I those were my teenager years. They were they were pretty relaxed, you know, and like the, the most exciting things you would have would be maybe a new band coming yeah. out with some new music or something. But that was pretty much it. But if, if we compare the life of somebody living in the 1700s, the amount of information that that person received in, the, in, in their whole lifetime was comparable to just one week of the New York Times today. Yeah, so, so you, you already see the amount of data that, that we're creating, the amount of information, just because, you know, the whole world is now more connected, interconnected. So many things are happening. There are a lot of synergies happening everywhere. And, and as you say, right now, I think the amount of information is actually an overload. Overload of information is, is making us numb to, to be able to think. And through strategic foresight, through looking at, you know, how, how does the future develop? You start to really then say, what do I really need? What is the important? What are the important things that I need to concentrate on? And of course, it helps you manage that. And that, that's why we always say kind of manage the future, because we're looking at managing, managing that amount of information that we're receiving, making sense out of it, and then really acting upon it. So um, in the company that I founded, Turning Point, we, we have a, a bit of a model and we say from the future to today, to implementation. We don't just want to leave things in the future. We want to bring it to today. What does it mean? What is the relevance? And then go into an implementation, which would mean let's do something about it. So that means also reducing that amount of noise, that amount of quantity of information that we're getting, filtering it out, making really what, what makes sense and, and what you could make out of it. But uh, I, I see that, that with the question you're, you're asking, you know, peaks. Yes, we are on a peak. I think that peak will continue to be a peak. 
Um, we won't go back into normal phases of having less information or where information is easy to digest. Maybe what I would say in the, in the next uh, years, what will come will be a bit more of data clustering. So maybe data will become a little bit more easy to put together what is related to what, and you can already see some of those signals coming into the market with apps like, for example, uh, Flipboard. Yeah, so, so Flipboard is, is a pretty interesting app that helps you scan a lot of different information just by putting in topics. So you create small magazines of a certain topic, and it will look for all of the sources related to that. So you just have to flip through it instead of going to all of the different sources and looking for that um, specific information that you would like to get. So yes, yeah. these things might be coming up. And um, I, I, I do give up on the hope that, that life will become more simple with less information. I think it's just going to be become more and more complicated. And we need to find ways of making that more simple and more easy. We're never going back to the 90s, are we? No, I think no, we're, it's uh, we're stuck. So, and you mentioned there the whole world is connected. And, you know, you mentioned the 1700s and people weren't connected back then. They were stuck in their hometown and very rarely would they move or migrate from their hometown. Uh, and even if they did, they, they weren't able to communicate with people beyond their sort of local vicinity. Um, how have you seen the trends in the global connectivity and where do you where do you sort of see that extending yeah well connectivity is 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 one of the elements that really affects us in a lot of different industries so if if we look at you know automated vehicles how much connectivity is coming into that and, and how are those vehicles being connected to different other cars so we're not even talking about anymore like in the 1700s we you know what's the connection between people we, we already give that for a given look you're in the philippines i'm in germany that, that's already a given. We, we can have this conversation. We can spread it out. That's not a big, that's not a big deal. Um, but we're looking at how now other forms or definitions of connectivity are happening between machines, between machines and humans, between um, infrastructure and, and different elements that run, run around that infrastructure. And, and we see that, you know, a lot of the connectivity elements, uh, not only technical and, and human, are a big enabler for all of this data that, that, that's running around, ways of making business. And we can actually even bring it into, into, into connecting and in how are we working actually today? You know, mm -hmm. the, the way that we work today has largely been changed by connectivity factors. We, we have different methods of doing this and we see it as one of the main driving elements, or I said influence factors at the beginning. Um, you know, what is the virtualization, what is the digitalization and globalization that we have within our working environment and how has that right now changed drastically for a lot of people in the last years? For some, it has already started, you know, five, six, seven, ten years ago uh, for certain industries. And just by having that type of virtualization, digitalization and connectivity, also, remote companies have been created, just basically something that you call a frog, fully remote organization that mm. basically don't have a physical presence anywhere. These, these yeah. are people that work completely remotely and they're completely connected and using collaboration tools, using uh, digital tools uh, to be able to, to, to work together. So 
this and is it, it's becoming it's becoming a you know it's a huge trend, isn't it? And like I think the tools for remote work, uh, well, they didn't exist twenty years ago, and now they exist. Um, but behaviors were still very much the same. And then along came uh, COVID and it forced a lot of traditionalists into a remote environment. And they realized that maybe they didn't like it, but at least it was now possible. And, you know, we, we talk about sort of differing rates of change. And maybe when you have a catalyst, like a major sort of event, then it, it kind of speeds up change. And I think that that has happened with with uh, remote and the workforce. And there is sort of a, an increased network within the global community. Um, how, how do you see that playing out over the next 20 years? Do you see that, you know, because as well, like some, uh, some parts of society believe that we're going to get increasingly nationalist. We're going to close borders. There's going to be wars and we all have to do our own manufacturing and, 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 um, uh, grow our own vegetables versus other people believe, like myself, I believe that there's going to be a singular economy, a global economy, global workforce. And sure, we're going to have fights between us. You know, there's going to be countries that have feuds, but ultimately we're all trading more, traveling more, communicating more uh, on a global scale. Where do you see it playing out? And which one of those is noise versus which one of them is a, is a strong, true signal? Yeah, Good. love the question because you're really putting different perspective of how different influence factors come together and come to play. So you just describe basically two scenarios, you know, very localized, uh, creating your own sustainable environment towards a more, you know, open economy, maybe one bigger economy that supports everything and, and, and then the fights along that. So you just described basically two directions of the same type of factors that we're talking about. So we're talking about how do we create food? How do we create work? How do we create an economy? And all those have different facets or different, I would say different shades of that same element that spread out, let's say, in, into, into different scenarios. Um, I'm, I'm more of the, the, if, if I, I kind of stay away from making predictions. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I try to not to do. Um, but I, but I really like the, the idea of, you know, having these different ways of scenarios. And actually, we always say, um, and when we do this type of, uh, of analysis of where could things go in a certain environment or a certain industry, we say there will not be an absolute scenario in the future. So that means that the scenario that you prefer, that you describe against to that one that, that is completely opposite to yours, will be coexisting in some form, in some regions, and in some areas of the world. So those will be maybe there. One might be stronger than the other one. They could be maybe uh, very equivalent to each other. But at the same time, both will coexist in some form. So there won't be one absolute uh, way. Now, we can also spin that off and say, hey, there are two or three other possible scenarios that would come. Uh, for example, um, maybe only the Americas will create their own trade system and keep separate from the rest of the world. Or let's say an extension of the EU, or will the EU uh, break up and create their own economical zones without the same currency? These are all things that could happen, um, and, and we can put them into that scenario. And that will drastically also change the way of work, Yeah, the way of 
how people collaborate, how they do their business, what, what happens in the background. And when we, when we look at that, then we say, well, what could we possible? What, what should we prepare for? Should I, should I start looking at saying, well, um, do I start creating my own chains of value? Uh, do I create my own supply chains and try to start to localize? So give you an example. Um, Germany has been hit pretty strongly with a lot of the, let's say, semiconductor shortages that are happening at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We, we don't have an industry that creates that. We're dependent on outside suppliers from different areas and different parts of the world. But a lot of industries are suffering in Germany because of that. They, they have not have that complete supply chain. So now they're starting to think, well, should we invest in the country, creating more of that chip expertise, creation of wafers, uh, creation of you know, a, an industry around that that would help us override shortages like what's happening right now. Mm. But to say the truth, we're 10, 15 years too late. It will take that much amount of time. It will take a decade to kind of get that industry running and then make it autosufficient for this area. So it is something that governments are thinking and they are looking at different possibilities. And at the end, um, or, or at least right now, the strategic direction for all of those scenarios is saying, well, can I create an internal supply chain? Can I create an external one? And then balance that out depending on the situation, how it occurs. So they're, they're pretty much playing their cards very spread out into the ways that they, that they approach this. It seems with anything or I suppose evolution of anything, there, there's always like a, a polarization. There's a yin and a yang. Uh, there is sort of centralized versus decentralized. There is, I don't know, you know, um, and like, you know, self-sufficiency versus whatever collaboration and networking. And, um, and it seems that as a society evolves, like, there are the there are the extremes of either polarity, and then society sort of bumps down the middle, and veering from right to left a little bit, and sort of always remaining around the centre. But then when there's a kind of a, an upset or a hiccup, you know, and like the Ukraine war, for example, Germany is now saying, look, we look, you know, we've been reliant on other people's gas for too long. We now need other services for gas. But of course, you can't. You, you can't ever make um, preparations for the unknown because otherwise you wouldn't ever do anything because there's risks to anything. And, and you know, potentially when Russia is peaceful, then maybe it was a good idea. And so it's it's kind of difficult to have any guidance on all this, isn't it? And it, there, it doesn't seem accurate to say um, one polarity is right, but you need to sort of continually bounce back and forth between between the two. Yes, and, and that's true. It's, it's of course you you when good times are good, you do the things that are good at that good time. When times are difficult, then you start to make then maybe rushed decisions, mm-hmm. and that's exactly the point of of trying to look ahead and manage the future. When when things are going good, you're relaxed. I have a client right now who is is in the finance area, and they say, look, finance, we're doing great. We're doing, we're doing our, our earnings. Uh, we have a good massive revenue. We're, we're profitable, but we're in a good area. This is a good time to start thinking about what could come ahead in the next two, three, five, ten 10 years that we should prepare 
and offer our clients and look at our company and look at what kind of possibilities could, could come up. So we are looking at different scenarios with them. And we are looking in, in like, just like you said, at polarizing scenarios. They might be looking at one side or the other, but then they're still looking at alternatives and also things that could be good for both situations. That would be a fail-proof, let's say, strategic decision, something that would cover both. So you're kind of doing something like dummy proofing. Yeah, mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what case comes. Is it black or white? You will have a good solution that would cover that. At the same time, they're also thinking outside of those polarizing scenarios and saying, well, what else could come? How should I prepare? And what should I do? And how do I keep this on my radar that I get the right signals to start to say, well, now I need to take that action. So that's something that, that you can start to do. It, it is a bit of an exercise for the long term. And, and, and I like to make this contrast. If, if we live in the future, only in the future, we're only dreaming. If we're living in the past, we're only living with our past success or failures. Of course, it's great to be in the present and you can learn from the past, look into the future and make decisions for it today. So that's uh, a way that we kind of recommend to look at it. Got it. And turning point then, you have um, what you mentioned as, as sort of an outsourced foresight department. So it's really important for companies to know what's coming in the future and to prepare themselves for that and maybe also their product and their market and their sales and all that. But in terms of the operations of a company, uh, you you can help them navigate the future and prepare for the future um, so that they're not sort of blindsided. But, you know, where we, you know, I, I'm sort of specifically in the outsourcing market, remote global employment uh, and that's really changed a lot with COVID. Now, of course, no one could see COVID coming, um, but it has come and that's really changed things. Um, how, how do you think companies should prepare for the future in terms of the fast changing um, employment landscape? And do you think that everything is going to be remote in the future? Should every company you know, ditch all of their offices today? Or do you think that it could be cyclical and, and, you know, in five years time, it's going to be in vogue to go into the office and hang out by the photocopier again? How can companies prepare for, for a, a workplace of the future? Sure. I, I think definitely a lot of um, companies that supply coffee machines are not very happy right now. Yeah. <laughs> all those right. coffee machines are not being used. Um, and, Look, the question is, is, is pretty big and pretty complex, but I would, I would kind of break it down as, as something simple. When we look at, at how that future might be changing and how, how much remote there will be, there will be an element of remoteness. Yeah? Um, a lot of people are longing to go back into the offices just for the personal interconnection, but then saying, I want my freedom to decide where I work, how I work, and how often do I come into the office? That's one part. Then you have um, things that would look like, um, you know, how, how do we want to manage the organization? So the managers will kind of be looking at saying, well, do I want people here? How do we do it? How do we create that flexible environment where people are mostly productive? How do they want to work and what environment would be good for them? 
And this is a dialogue that needs to happen between the teams and the management. This is not only a one or decision. So um, looking into that, you have a lot of different opportunities to say, look, can, can, we, can we make it remote? Can we make it physical? And what is the percentage of that, of that happening going into the future? So talking about offshoring and, 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 and putting, you know, um, looking at, at how do you offshore a lot of activities, there are certain departments that are essential for your company. Let's say you're a software company, you will want to have that in your core um, domain. You will want to have maybe your your direct uh, people that, that do the software decisions, your senior managers for, for software in your core. Now, if you start to look at other departments that are not core for your organization, you might want to have them off, off site. You might want to even just hire them and, and bring them in from externals. So that has happened to us. Uh, we, we do for a couple of companies that are smaller companies. Their core is not really to look at the future, totally fine, but it is important for them to have a guidance in that direction. So, so they basically kind of come to us and, and use us as an external department for a certain period of time where we help them with their innovation, we help them with their, with their product management, we help them looking at the market and understanding what's going on. So it is not core and essential for them. So I think this trend of having modular companies, let's call it this way, modular in the form of, I just get building blocks and I hire what I need when I need it for the time that I, that I, that I can or that I want, will, it, it is coming more to, to float is being able to be seen in the system. And when you look at that, you see there's a lot of potential in this form of creation of value. So for these companies, it becomes much more efficient in their recurring costs. So they don't have to maintain these departments for the whole year. They just bring them in for their strategic decisions once a quarter, once a half a year, depending on the industry or once a year. And basically they're, they're becoming more efficient. Mm. So, you will see that there is a massive fragmentation. These massive companies with, you know, 250,000 employees, uh, big massive supply chains, big departments on HR um, or, or, or strategy or innovation, they might not be there anymore. They, they start to become seldom, they become rare. And, and right now the trend is more to having individual specialized companies that you can put together and hire when you need them for the amount of time that you need them. So um, that that comes really nice just to describe one scenario. Um, yes, we will still have the extremes, you know, everything in-house, everything outsourced, and then in between kind of those building blocks for outsourcing. And it's an interesting thing about nature, isn't it? As, as companies get bigger and organizations get bigger, they get less uh, agile and they get stuck into you know you've got 50,000 staff you've invested in all of these big fancy office buildings and then you lose your agility and your flexibility and it's very difficult to move the organization and the operation uh, and then you know that's where a sort of nimble agile startup that's never had an office and it's got just a bunch of 24 year olds sitting around their living rooms can out compete and um, do pretty powerful things. It's the funny thing about kind of nature, isn't it? That um, if you're caught off guard, once you're sort of invested into a particular way of doing things, if you're caught off guard, it, it can be very dangerous if the trends 
move against your your position. It's uh, fascinating, huh? And what do you think, uh, Richard, about cities then? Do you think, you know, there's a lot being said about New York, for example. It was the end of New York. uh, And cities don't need to have a lot of people move out before they can't balance the the payments. And, you know, then there's litter on the street and then there's potholes in the road and the subways start to get dangerous and then more people move out because it's not so nice. And then, you know, unlike before, you can now sort of almost earn a Wall Street salary sitting in the countryside somewhere or the Hamptons. And so do you do you sort of see that there's the end of the major cities? Was was cities a lifestyle choice or was were people just forced there because it was where they could earn the money? Yeah, um, re- really interesting question. Um, when you think about it and you see how cities were set up, um, and let's just take the case of New York. I mean, a, a lot happened with industrialization and, and having to be in a physical place to work. Yeah, there, a lot of industry, a lot of uh, market and trade. And, you know, right right now there, there are elements in the system or in this network of, of system and influence factors that weren't there, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago. And uh, when, when you see that in, in Europe, uh, they're, they're pretty interesting advances, for example, in bigger companies or middle-sized companies also saying, hey, I, I will post this job position and where it says the location element, it says work from anywhere within Germany or within France or within the Schengen zone. Mm. So it's, it's very interesting because companies and policies are changing very strongly. So do you need really the people into a city? Well, maybe. What, what are the factors driving that person to be in a city? Is it because of the, the, the supply chains? Maybe he can get you know, his Amazon deliveries in a, better, in a better way. Maybe he has a better infrastructure. So cities are starting to look and say, well, what do I offer individual habitants of that city as services, offerings that will keep them here? Is it high-speed internet? Is it you know central heating? Is it a better um, uh, infrastructure on delivering foods and goods? Uh, it, it, it can be very various uh, forms of, of doing this. Um, so there are some advantages that cities need to look at, and they need to make that analysis. And very interesting that we've been talking about foresight and future, mostly concentrated about you know around companies and industries, but cities governments, um, NGOs can look at this type of development and understand where are their clients going? What do they need? What are those customer requirements and wants? What is that customer persona that they want to attract because of the services that they're providing? So Mm -hmm. just to give you an example, and here in Germany, again, if you just go outside of the city, there are certain bandwidths of of your cell phone coverage that will not be able to be done outside of the city. I mean, you're going to get decreased speed. uh, You're going to have a very bad connection. And that's being offered by by cities. Cities are also looking at the ways of, you know, reducing a lot of CO2 emissions. So are they offering a certain public transport in, in a different way? Is it electrified? Is it buses? Is it more availability of these things? And, and, and of course, they will need the, the habitants of that city to be able to pay their taxes, do all the, the, the work that they need to do so that those services can be financed and funded. Um, some cities are looking at, you know, ways of 
creating interconnected meshes. So for example, um, uh, smart cities, including you know, uh, any type of uh, problems in, in traffic, they would be localized, detected, removed at the spot, creating a, a flow of, of traffic in a better way. They would be looking at, is there a, a fire in a certain house? So, so mm -hmm. now when you look at your, at your um, uh, smoke detectors, they're not just a smoke detector that has just a battery inside it. It is a smoke detector that is connected to a system, centralized, and gives an information directly, if you're not at home, to the, to the fire department. Fire department comes, takes care of the situation, and you, you didn't even notice it. Yeah? So this is the way that cities are trying to look at that change, offer services, and benefits for the individual habitants. So it is, I could tell you a bunch of other examples, but this is kind of the way that cities and governments are starting to look at the, the distribution of city and population uh, within their boundaries. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? In some respects, things change so fast. And then in some respects, because you're dealing with people and, you know, like cultures and um, things move so slow don't they because you have to sort of reach consensus and get people to agree and you know there's municipalities that obviously can't change overnight or even in 50 or 100 years uh, it's it's kind of fascinating isn't it because it can take you 50 years to get planning approval for an airport for example uh, yet the whole world is moving around it so so quick Richard it's been amazing I want to close on probably my most difficult question of the day, if you don't mind, but do you, do you think in the future there will be, do you think countries will become irrelevant like borders? And as we become increasingly networked and are communicating sort of regardless of the borders and maybe, you know, this is sort of controversial, but culturally maybe English becomes more ubiquitous. Um, uh, do you think that um, countries become less relevant and i don't know if that means the country in terms of the border or laws or the country or in terms of the the culture and identity but do you think that those things are likely to become completely irrelevant or or maybe more relevant in the future that, that's a hard question to, to finish <laughs> off with very difficult to answer from a lot thanks of very much, Richard. thanks very much <laughs> you make my life difficult Derek. but <laughs> no but but to look at that i mean I, I like these two aspects that, that you just mentioned. One is law-wise and, and, and border-wise. So there are some there, there is some flexibility coming into these things. Uh, so just take example again of, of Germany. Um, Germany has always had with bordering countries uh, certain laws. If you live within, you know, if 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 you are what they call a, a constant border traveler or border border worker which means you live in germany work work in austria or switzerland or the netherlands and you live within a certain you know distance from the border and you cross the border every day you can do your taxes in either or country um if if uh, also german laws says well if you if you um, have certain working days outside of the country uh that could that, that that's not a big problem as long as you're not registered in the other country you're, you're still living in germany but you're just working from from abroad for a certain period of time uh throughout the year you have a certain contingent uh contingency in in in, in days that you can use but 
culture-wise, which was your second point, that maintains really relevant um, when, when, when you look at just throughout Europe, how, how close countries are and how, how small sometimes they are and how important the culture is in those, in those areas. Not only uh, what they do as festivities or certain, uh, yeah, I would say habits, but also um, the way that they use dialects, use special words, it gives a certain identity to a group, to a clan. Yeah, it gives you that that unification of, of people. And if we look at, back at your question, where are we going? Are we going to just you know forget countries? Maybe countries could disappear at some point. I doubt it will be something of, of the next uh, fifty to hundred years. I think that will take a lot longer. This is very cemented in our in our human brains. Um, but I definitely see that that communities are becoming much more mixed. I, I've been living for 20 years in Germany, and I said that it was important to look at the past sometimes. The last 20 years that I've been living in Germany, I speak German, but all of the companies that I work with, I think 90% of the time I speak English. Mm. Uh, I use German wow. in very seldom occasions. Uh, it's so open, so advanced. It's, it's, it, it, it's a normal way of working. So. Yeah. Uh, this becomes a working culture. Yeah, Th that's a second culture we need to look at. It's not only the country or the regional culture; it's also what's what's the working culture. Um, you can see that some of the things that, even though in the culture they're respected, respectful. For example, in Spanish, and I come from South America, we have a, a respect term for you know older people or people with a bigger seniority. Um, you 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 have a certain respect form and the, the way that you speak to them in Spanish is different to speaking, you know, to you uh, and, and, and just in a, in a casual way. And that changes also through, through business. They might change back and they say, well, we're speaking English. Everybody's on the first name basis and they go back to their original languages. It could be either German or Spanish and they will address you with Mr. XYZ. And they will speak in that form. So it's very interesting to see interesting to see that work culture against the real culture. But back to your question, countries, my feeling or at least the, my my scenario is they will they will stay, but flexibility will come within those borders. Work will change, interactions will change, way of working and working culture will be different. So that will be something for the long run that we need to kind of look at and keep in mind. Fascinating. Thank you, Richard. And, you know, I, it, it is so critical for these institutions, for businesses and to stay on top of the future, you know, like um, as a business, I think you actively contribute to the future. And if you misread the future or the direction or, or you know, where the trend is heading, then you miss as a, as a business and it can be it can be fatal, can't it? And, you know, there are there are really significant kind of issues at the moment, such as employment, you know, and how to keep your staff happy and should you should you stay within one country or go global. So fascinating topics. And um, if there are any companies out there, I uh, it, it's uh, would would love your feedback. But um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating topic. Richard, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And um, just so again, turning point and you are you offer outsourced foresight and futurist services which again is so so valuable for for companies um how how can they get in touch or, or learn more 
Sure. Um, you can get in touch directly through through our webpage, uh, basically um, turningpoint.space. And I love what you just said about how companies are looking at people because our mission is basically create better companies that are future oriented, that are ready for change, and that improve the capital of people or the working capital uh, of people who work within them. And with that in mind, we basically believe that better human teams make better companies. And in turn, this makes better societies. And that's what we're looking for. We don't want these companies to disappear. They're an important element in society. And through those companies, you are creating a society. So we want to support that. And that's our main driver and mission that we have. So Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. And that uh, was uh, really very educational. Thank you, Derek, for having me. That was Richard Jaimez of Turning Point. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to email us, ask us anything, just send us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.